Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, key emphasis on living hope. Living Savior. The reason the resurrection is such a big deal to us and to Christians all over the world this morning is because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the defining moment of everything that we believe. Everything we believe about Jesus, his death, forgiveness of sins, the hope of heaven, the promise of eternal life, everything hinges on Christ's resurrection from the dead. Everything you believe hinges on what happened 2,000 years ago in the city of Jerusalem on a Sunday morning with Mary Magdalene, some disciples, the family members of Jesus Christ, discovering that he has risen from the dead. If, if the resurrection of Christ is not true, then what we believe is not true. Now, as the, Paul's conclusions as you're reading chapter 15 in your devotion time this week, the Corinthians evidently said to Paul, we believe maybe in Christ's resurrection, but certainly not ours. And Paul starts dismantling their argument and telling them basically this. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, you must believe in the resurrection. And if you don't believe in the resurrection, you're going to stop calling yourself a Christian. That's how serious this gets. Because what all Christians believe He's writing 25 years later. What all Christians believe is that Christ rose from the dead. Paul plays some word games with them, argues back and forth, but ultimately he says to them, if you want to deny the resurrection, if Christ is not risen, if the resurrection of Christ is false, then everything we believe is also false. And that was the conclusion of the early followers of Jesus Christ universally there was no exception to this I'm reading now from 1st Corinthians 15 verse 13 if there is no resurrection of the dead I mean if there's no such thing then let's take it to its absurd conclusions then not even Christ has been raised if resurrection is not a thing then it's not a thing for Jesus either then Christ is not raised and if Christ be not raised verse 14 then our proclamation is vain. They're just words. It means nothing. And so is your faith. It's also vain. Now, I know on an Easter Sunday morning, I'm speaking to several different groups of people. We don't all come from the same background. We don't all come from the same 2020. Some of you buried loved ones in 2020. Some of you got sick in 2020. Some of you have never had a sniffle in your life. We all come from some different perspectives as we approach Easter Sunday this year. You all come from different places on your spiritual journey. Some of you are rock solid in your faith. Some of you are seeking, trying to figure it all out right now. Just trying to find your way. Some of you are starting a family now and you're like, okay, Husband, okay, wife, we need to figure out what we believe. Because we're bringing little ones into this world and we want to raise them to know Jesus Christ. Therefore, what do we need to be doing now 
to set that in motion for our family, that we can be a, a family of faith. Some of you have questions. I get that too. Uh, some of you are asking this morning, can I be a Christian and still have some unanswered questions? I think that's a fair question for you to be asking. I see lots of people asking questions in the New Testament. People coming to Christ and wanting to know, you know, about the resurrection, about forgiveness of sins. Are you the Messiah? You know, how do you get to heaven? How, how are sins free? There's all kinds of questions being answered. And I think it's okay for you to have questions this morning. Certainly as your pastor, I'm not going to be the person to stand up here and say, you're not allowed to have questions. I have all kinds of questions that I wrestle with and I wrestle with Christ with and I wrestle with the Word of God with. Maybe you came to church today because, you know, some, some family or some friends asked you to come along. It's Easter after all. And you came along with family and friends and you're wondering, do these educated people? I mean, I went to Tech or to UT or to OU or to whatever with some of these people in the room. Do these educated people actually believe that a man who was crucified and buried, do they actually believe he rose from the dead? That's a legit question. And I want you to uh, I'll just go ahead and answer it for you. Yes, we do believe that. Educated people in the room do actually believe that. But if you're struggling, it's okay. We'll, we'll go together on the journey, okay? And maybe you came on this Easter Sunday. Maybe, for a lot of people, it's been a while, right? Maybe this is the pathway back to some normalcy for you this Easter Sunday morning. Maybe, maybe... Maybe you grew up in a Christian tradition. You know, the stats in America right now, we're losing about 70 to 80% of our teenagers are walking away from the faith of their parents. Maybe you're a teenager and you're asking, you know, I thought I believed as a child, but I'm not sure I believe right now. Or maybe you're in your 20s right now and you're wondering, will I ever believe again? That's okay. That's legit to ask. All of those are good questions, and I, and I think if you'll be honest with God, you'll find the answers you're looking for. What I want to say to this group this morning is it's okay to have questions, legit, adult, intellectual, spiritual questions about your faith, about Christ, and I think you need some adult answers. I don't think you need platitudes and, and Sunday school answers. I think you need some adult answers answers by the way if you're new to christianity we we have a lot of people coming new to christianity and if you're coming in freshly to christianity christianity does not ask you to believe blindly uh, you, you know faith is not blind that's not true faith is not the absence of evidence faith is not just taking a leap and believing it to be so just leap out there and and, and see what's what christian faith is very different than that christian faith rests on a mountain of solid evidence. Amen. That's really what I want to talk about this morning, a mountain of solid evidence. And, and I know most of us are going to come through a public or private university at some point in our lives. It's part of the American journey. And as you come through the university, it's very likely that you're going to, because you're a follower of Christ and you love the Lord, you're going to take a, maybe a religion class. It'll be a giant mistake, but you're going to take a religion class and if you take comparative religions in the university, I promise you it'll probably confuse you more than anything. You will not get a fair assessment 
and a true telling of what Christianity is really about. Though the world's full of skeptics, and, and skeptics are just part of what comes with the territory for us who are followers of Christ, and it's okay for people to ask questions and be skeptical. I want to set that up clearly. But Christianity has answers for skeptics and skepticism. The skeptic voices that exist have been around forever, and they're constantly being answered. For example, skeptics say, or they said, way, way back, there probably really was no Jesus who lived. The problem is they found history books like Josephus and others who talk about him. Secular history books, not just religious works. Yeah, he lived. It's a chronicled fact he lived. He changed the world. A myth can't change the world like Christ has changed the world. Well, then they once argued, well, if he lived, okay, so he lived. We see the evidence he lived. Well, he certainly didn't die on the cross. That's a, just a manufactured folktale. Well, if he did die on the cross, he certainly didn't rise again from the dead. Well, then where's his body? Because the credibility of the Roman Empire and the Jewish Supreme Court's at stake. Certainly somebody could produce the body. The FBI, the CIA, the Navy SEALs, the Roman centurion. Somebody surely can produce the body. Oh, there's the body. It's walking and talking. Well, praise God. They've got a real problem on their hands with Jesus Christ. Well, then skeptics said, we know the narratives in the Bible are not correct. You see, they're constantly being disproven. They said there was no Pontius Pilate. We can't, can't find a record of it in Rome. Until one day there was a stepping stone in the Middle East outside the city of Caesarea. If you've traveled with us to Israel, you've been to Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea, where the old Roman ruins are. Where, and so there's a stepping stone there, just a stone people were using as a, to you know, wipe your feet on and go in. And somebody had the audacity to flip that stone over. You know what was chiseled on the backside of that stone? Pontius Pilatus Prefectus Judea. This building is dedicated in honor to Pontius Pilate, the governor, Roman governor of Judea. If you went to Israel with us two years ago, you saw that monument, that stone, the original, in the Israeli Museum in Jerusalem. Well, there go the skeptics. Skeptics said, well, okay, so maybe there was a Jesus, maybe there was a Pontius Pilate. This, that, that happened in 1960-61. Well, okay, we'll grant there was a Pilate then. But there was no Joseph Caiaphas, high priest of the Sanhedrin, in the first century. We can't find any records of that name. And then in the 1990s, some workers were working in Jerusalem, and they were clearing some stones away and probably making a highway or a foundation, and they broke into a chamber underground they didn't know existed. And when they stepped into the room, it was full of sarcophagi, sarcophaguses, mini sarcophagi in the room, ossuaries actually full of bones and chiseled on the outside of one of the sarcophagi the sarcophagus said these are the bones of Joseph Caiaphas high priest of Israel now what are you going to do I'll tell you what you're going to do you can believe the Bible because the skeptics are going to be proven false step by step one by one let me fast forward today no credible scholar argues that there was not a man named Jesus Christ who lived on this earth. No credible scholar can say that. There is a mountain of evidence. 
No credible scholar can say that. So the skeptics are left with only this. You Christians believe in a legend. Now a legend is a peculiar thing. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Legend's a very peculiar thing. You see, you guys could say something fantastic happened in 1985 in Fort Worth and you could make up this big legend and myth. The problem is, I was in Fort Worth in the 80s. Anybody else? You old timers in the room? We could debunk your myth because we could say, no, I was here, you're full of baloney. Does that make sense? Uh, somebody could say something fantastic happened back in 1970s in Arlington, Texas, but there's people in this room who could debunk that if it didn't actually happen. What I'm saying is you can't make up a legend too close to the actual date that you're suggesting because if you do, there are people who can stand up and say, no, you're full of nonsense. I was there in Jerusalem for Passover in 30 AD. That's not what went down. I was there. That's not what ha Or I was there, and here is what happened. Now, if you're going to build a legend, this is the whole point. If you're going to build a legend, a legend takes hundreds of years of embellishment, little by little, to grow into this legend of mythical proportions. If you make legendary claims too close to the events, if you propose something miraculous happened in 30 AD, and it's only 33, 34, 44, 54 AD, there's a whole lot of people who were in Jerusalem still alive, and they can say yes or no to what you're saying. So the big question this morning for you really seekers who want some, something really to rest your faith on you want to be asking yourself this question, when did people start believing in the resurrection of Jesus? It's a very important question to your faith. When did people start believing in the resurrection of Jesus? Did this begin in the 1950s with Billy Graham? Somebody just asked Siri, I think, over there just now. No, it didn't begin with uh, Billy Graham. You know, did it begin with the Reformation in the 1550s? People started finally believing in the resurrection 1,500 years after Christ? No, 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 no. You, you know, did, did the belief in the resurrection happen in the 300s when the Catholic Church began to emerge in Europe and centralized control of religion? No, no. Let me give you the facts, and I'll let you decide for yourself. Here's fact number one. Somewhere around 30, 33 A.D., hope was lost. 2,000 years ago, all hope was lost for those who were followers of Christ. Here's what went down. Jesus was betrayed. He was delivered up to his enemies. They treated him like a common criminal. He was arrested. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was tried illegally. He was whipped violently within an inch of his life. He was hit over the head, he was hit with the fist, he was hit with a reed, he was hit with a whip. His beard was ripped, they spit on him, they laughed at him, they mocked him, they sentenced him to die. The most torturous, cruel death invented by humans to be nailed upon a cross, exposed to the world and die in agony, suffocating, exposed to the elements, bleeding to death, dehydrating to death outside of the city of Jerusalem. After enduring a morning and an afternoon of torture, 
really a night, a morning, and an afternoon of torture. Somewhere in the afternoon, the Bible says he gave up the ghost, cried with a loud voice, Father, it's finished. And he bowed his head and he was dead. Two followers of Christ, secret followers, now expose themselves as public followers. They go to Pontius Pilate. They ask for permission to give the body a proper burial. It's a big deal. I don't have time to explain. Another Easter service, I will. People who are crucified don't get buried. They get thrown in the garbage heap after their body rots on the cross, turns to goo, and falls in a pile. You scoop up, up in a bucket and take it over and throw it in the dump. But they sought permission to bury the body of Jesus Christ. And he was buried. Those who followed Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Mary's mother, the brothers of Jesus are watching even though they're not believers. The disciples of Christ are there. Those you know as the apostles have seen these things all take place and their hopes were shattered. Their dreams were absolutely crushed. Every anticipation of him being the Messiah is now gone. Every hope they had in Christ has been absolutely crushed. Let me just say, their hope died when Jesus died. Their hope died when Jesus died. They left everything to follow Jesus. Peter, James, Andrew, John, they left their uh, commercial fishing enterprise to follow Christ. Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, left his position with the Roman government to go and follow Christ. Dr. Luke left his family practice to go and follow Jesus Christ. They believed he was the Messiah. He's going to take over. He's going to rule Israel. He's going to fix this mess the world's in. He's going to make everything right. We're all geared up for the big changes that Christ is about to bring. But then he was killed in horrific fashion before their eyes. And when Christ died, their hope was killed also The disciples of Christ are stunned. They are devastated. Peter is beyond himself. He's just beside himself. Not only has his Savior died, his Messiah died, his hopes died, he was complicit in denying Jesus Christ at the very end. He's so upset with himself, utterly dejected. How could all of this happen? And what in the world does it mean for us now going forward? Christ has died and he's been buried. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, hold on boys, Sunday's coming. They didn't know Sunday was coming. Which brings me to this thought. No one expected a resurrection. It's my goal to tell you this every year. Because when you get to spring every year, you know Easter's coming. They had no concept. They didn't know what you're talking about. You're all geared up. Easter's coming in a few weeks. They had no idea. The joy that you have now, they didn't have it then because no one expected a resurrection. They expected to never see Jesus again. As I told you year by year, there are no disciples gathered at the tomb on Sunday morning. Ten, nine, eight, seven. Six, five, four, three. You know, they got confetti and more and, you know, no. There's no one going down to the tomb on Sunday morning expecting a resurrection. No one saw a resurrection coming. It wasn't even on their radar. When Jesus died, they expected him to stay dead. 
because when people die, they stay. Have you not buried some of your own loved ones? And when people die, they stay dead. And they expected them to stay dead. Mary Magdalene, we know, is the first one who comes to the tomb on Sunday morning before the sun's even up. When Mary Magdalene came down to the tomb on Sunday morning to embalm, listen to my words, to embalm Jesus, if she can get somebody to roll the stone away, to embalm Jesus, if she could get the soldiers to remove the stone, in what condition did she expect to find Jesus? Dead. She's bringing embalming spices. Not for the living. I mean, it's not like, you know, Chanel and Polo, slap some aftershave on, let's go Jesus, you're ready for a bright new future here. It wasn't like that. She's got spices because she expects him to be dead when she gets there. And she's going to embalm him if she can get them to roll away the stone. John 20, verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. While it was still dark, she saw that the stone had already been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, it's John, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. No, she didn't say, we don't know where he walked. Where he went, somebody stole his remains, his body, and who knows what they have, it's a big conspiracy, they've stolen the Lord. Well, Peter and John come running then to the tomb to make sure Mary's got the story right. John stops at the doorway, Peter bursts right into the tomb. They see the grave clothes in the tomb, but no body, there was no body in that tomb, not knowing what else to do, Peter and John went home. I think they're stunned. I think they're just dazed. If you've ever buried a loved one, the only word I can give to you is numb. You just feel numb to everything. Sensory experiences are happening around you, and it's just like you're just numb to everything. And I think they walk in numbness back home just I can't process it. I don't know what it means. Yesterday was traumatic. The day before was traumatic. The day before was traumatic. I'm numb now. Now they've stolen the body. I don't even know what to do with all of this. Mary Magdalene didn't leave though. Let me read John 20 verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying. One at the head and one at the feet where they would have been in the tomb. Verse 13, the angel said to her, woman, why are you crying? You talk about some fun conversation in the Bible. If I ever walk upon you standing in a cemetery crying, the dumbest thing in the world to say to you is, oh, Sam, we're in a cemetery. Why would you be crying? I'm standing in a cemetery. Obviously, I'm mourning over I've lost someone. The angels are like, why are you crying? Because they've Not he's been resurrected. They've stolen his body. I mean, you talk about add insult to injury. You're going to desecrate his body? You beat him to death. You ripped his back off. He's unrecognizable as a man. That's all we could do to just wash the blood off of him, to get him in the tomb quickly before Passover. And now you're going to take the body? Where where, You got it nailed to the wall somewhere outside Jerusalem? I mean, what kind of horrific things do you have planned for his remains? They've taken his body. We don't know where they put him. And I'm beside myself. Now the big thing I want you to see is that Mary's not saying, he's alive, he's alive. 
She's not, she's not tweeting to the world and posting to the world the good news. She's saying somebody stole the body. Where have you taken him? Because those who love Jesus most thought they would never ever see him alive again. Dead people stay dead. Christ died and was buried. And that's where we are in the story so far. But the next line is, he rose from the grave and was seen. If Jesus rose from the grave and went back to heaven without being seen, that would have been cruel for his followers. Can you imagine what that would have been like? If he'd just gone, never appeared to anybody, 2,000 years later, standing here in Fort Worth, we'd still be in doubt. We'd still be saying, ah, I don't know what happened back there 2,000 years ago. They never did find that body. Nobody really knows what happened. The ending to the story is really murky. Maybe this is all a legend. Maybe this is all a myth. It's not good enough that Christ rose from the grave. His followers needed to see him. And we, his followers, 2,000 years later, need some eyewitnesses to tell us whether it's true or not. By the time the sun comes up on Sunday morning, Jesus has already risen from the grave. And now Christ, after the angel scene and after the Mary weeping there at the tomb, now Christ begins to appear to those he loved. The very first appearance to that very Mary Magdalene who's still in the garden. He appears to her, then to hundreds of people now who are going to experience the risen Christ that day and over the next 40 days. Some of them experience the resurrected Christ in groups. Like this, large groups of people, some in middle-sized groups, some in small groups, and some individually. But they all came to the very same conclusion. Jesus is alive, and he's really who he claims to be. Now, I want to just clear the record a little bit. We do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead just because the Bible tells me so and the pastor said it was so. That's a little too simplistic for us. We do believe the Bible. But I'm just saying, you can't just say to people, the Bible says it, there it is. You need to explain that a little more. We don't believe that Christ, well, the Bible said it, there it is. No, why do we actually believe in the resurrection? It's a little more complex than that. The evidence is so reliable that you this morning cannot dismiss it. So consider a little more of an adult version of Jesus and the gospel that has the potential to change your life. We believe in the resurrected Christ because of Matthew, a converted tax collector, a, an employee of the Roman government who was a Jew, who was really good with numbers, like an accountant. We believe in Jesus Christ because Matthew, a converted tax agent, a government official, was an eyewitness to these events I'm describing and Matthew, his name's also called Levi, he believed in the resurrection of the dead. And he's an eyewitness. That's why I believe in the resurrection of the dead. You see, Mark, a young man who's being discipled by Simon Peter, both Mark and Peter were eyewitnesses to these events, and both Mark and Peter gave their testimonies, and they believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It doesn't stop there. Luke was a medical doctor, a man of science. Uh, one of the most prolific authors of the Bible. Acts, lengthy. Gospel of Luke, 
traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, eyewitness to the events that I've just described, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Luke is a man of science. He interviewed all the appropriate people, got all the eyewitness testimony, wrote it all down, reduced it to deposition, and came to one indisputable conclusion from the facts of the eyewitnesses. And he believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John called in the Gospel of John the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's his moniker. John the beloved, probably the closest personal friend of Jesus in a human friendship relationship, was an eyewitness of these events. And John wrote about it and he reduced it to writing and he published it. And here's what we know. He said, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. James the brother of Jesus Christ, the human brother of Jesus Christ, child of Mary and Joseph, that James. Nowhere in the Bible is James revealed to us as a believer during the gospel narratives. In the gospel narratives, James is a skeptic of his own brother. Does anybody have a brother? What would it take for your brother to convince you he was the son of God? Jeff, you've got brothers. I mean, if Adam rolled in here and said, you know, I'm, I'm the Messiah, really. I, I need to talk to you about something, Jeff. I'm really the Messiah, and I, I know I just look like you and the family and everybody else around us, but really, I'm the Son of God. But, you know what I'm saying? He'd have to rise from the dead to prove that to you. James is an absolute skeptic of Jesus, and when Jesus' ministry is happening, the brothers of Jesus, like James, are the ones mocking Jesus. Yeah, if you're the Messiah, go up to the temple and do something big, you know. Nut job brother we've got. Crazy religious kook brother we've got. Thinks he's the son of God. Messiah complex. I don't know what he's got. He's got all kinds of problems. He's leading a cult. You see all the people following him? Hundreds of people following our brother. He's some cult leader. Embarrasses the whole family. We're going to have to move to another country, change our name. You know? Why? Jesus is our brother. He's a nut job. That's James. That's before the resurrection. That's before the resurrection. But when he saw his brother crucified, buried, and alive after three days, James now is called the Apostle James, later in your Bible. Now the skeptic is no longer a skeptic. He believes his brother was the risen son of God. Let me give you the most extreme case, because they get more extreme as you go down the list. Paul was a terrorist against Christianity. I mean, his job was to kill Christians. He thought he was doing God a favor by exterminating Christians from the face of the earth. And Paul, with letters of arrest warrants in his pocket, going down the highway to get another batch of Christians and arrest them and, and kill them like he did Stephen, meets the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Paul saw the risen Christ Paul is a man of education, a multilingual law student of the highest order, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I could sit on the Supreme Court. I'm one of the smartest people in this country. Saul the risen Christ. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And today you and I are going to make a decision. And he said, Lord, what must I do? What do I have to do to be your follower? And he was converted. 
and the one who killed Christians now is the one preaching the gospel. He's promoting the very beliefs he had been trying to eradicate. Here's what I'm trying to say to you this morning. We don't believe that Jesus died and rose again because of some flannel graph in Sunday school. We believe Jesus died and rose again because there are hundreds of eyewitnesses and their testimonies all agree and you could depose them at any moment in these early days. This cannot be a legend. They saw him alive in Jerusalem for a month after he rose from the grave and the people who said, I saw it, I'd swear on a stack of Bibles, many of them gave their lives for their belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You will not lay down your life for something you're not sure about. They were sure 100%. So let's get back to our question quickly. When did people start believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because all the skeptics have left is it's a legend for you Christians, a crutch to lean upon, you know, something you guys invented somewhere along the way. Okay, well, let's deal with legend. It takes 100 years for a legend. So when did people start believing on the resurrection of Jesus? Well, the answer to that question is also found in the Bible, and it's found in the first church confession. Many of you in the room were raised in the Baptist tradition as I was. And uh, it, unfortunately, if you ask a Baptist, hey, what do you believe? Here's what a Baptist will tell you. Well, we believe the whole Bible, bless God. From cover to cover, every verse, every word, every period of scripture. Believe it all. That's kind of a Baptist answer. And you know what that does for me as an unbeliever? Doesn't clear anything up at all. Doesn't clear anything up for me at all. What do you believe? We believe the Bible, cover to cover. What part? All of it. What does it say? Not sure, but we believe it all. <laughs> Unfortunately, let me say it another way. I can criticize Baptists. Y'all can't get mad at me. I mean, I was raised this way, okay? So you just don't, don't be angry at me. This is my people, okay? Uh... Baptists are not creedal. Don't have creeds. Baptists, generally, as, as a denomination, are not confessional people. They don't have confessions. And I want you to know, Baptists are poorer because they are not creedal or confessional. Bear with me for a few moments now. Many Christian groups, I'm going to say most, actually, over 2,000 years, as you look backward, most Christian groups have recited confessions or creeds as a church body when they assembled together. Anybody here raised in a different tradition understands what I'm talking about? You said the Apostles' Creed or, or, or something together when you came together. It was a very part of your Christian community and gathering together. So depending on what tradition you grew up in, you may or may not be familiar with what I'm saying, but a confession is like a poem or a rhyme or distilled down uh, uh, doctrinal theological statements that, that give us simple sentences that describe uh, expressions of what we believe. In the first century, some guessed that only 15% of the people could read and write uh, in the first century. So the way they passed down truth was through confessions or creeds. They distilled truth down into sayings. And, of course, they don't all rhyme when you bring them over into English. But, you know, they would have like a rhyme or a meter or something where it was very easy to say a few sentences, and it would stick in your head, and it would tell people what, what you believe. Now, we've all used the, the power of rhyme. You understand the power of rhyme. It's how we learn things when we're little here in America, because when you learn something with a rhyme, it stays with you forever. A, B, C, D, E, F, 
G is your answer. <laughs> H I J K L M N O Q R S T U N. Yeah, you see, you get my point. Now, I'm saying my ABC. Once that got into your head, you'll never get it out. Some of you will sing it this afternoon now that I brought it up. You'll never get it out of your head because it's the power of creed. It's the power of rhyme. It's the power of poetry. It's the power of music. It's the power of getting something inside of you so simple and so elementary that A, B, C, D, E, F, G. We used to sing in Sunday school, Jesus died for you and me. Yeah. Anyway, what I'm saying is when somebody asks what we believe, it would be nice, it would be appropriate if we could give a concise yet profound sentence or two on what we believe. The earliest followers of Jesus had an answer to that question. What do you believe? And their answer was something that the first Christians were all 100% in unison on. As a matter of fact, you really couldn't, this is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15, don't call yourself a Christian unless you believe this. Because this is Christianity 101. This is the early creed of Christianity. This is what we all believe. And I give it to you in a couple of sentences. But don't forget the question. The question is this. When did people first start believing in the resurrection of Jesus? 300, 500, 1500, 1965? I mean, when did this happen? Well, let me give you a quick timeline. 30, Jesus was crucified. Roughly. We're within a year or two, okay? 30 A.D., first century, Jesus was crucified. 33, about three years later, Paul was converted, we know, at least within that three years. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, the terrorist, comes to faith in Jesus Christ, now going to become the Apostle Paul. By 36, three years later, Paul's now coming to Jerusalem to meet Simon Peter. 52-ish, Paul's at Corinth. Here's zero Corinthian stuff happening now precursor to 1 Corinthians happening by 55 Paul is now writing 1 Corinthians now let's just run this through in our minds real quick okay with you looking at that timeline Paul received Christ somewhere around 33 AD about three years after the resurrection I'm reading Galatians 1 now I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me instead I went to Arabia and I came back to Damascus then after three years Here's the three years. I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas, Simon Peter, and I stayed with him for 15 days. Now, wouldn't you like to have that conversation recorded somewhere? Paul spends the night, 52 weeks with Simon Peter in their home, and they talk about the things, the resurrection, the crucifixion. After three years, he meets an original disciple of Christ original apostle no bigger name in Christianity than Simon Peter 15 days they stayed together and roasted smoked some briskets and some ribs and just had a nice time catching up on all the stuff about Jesus verse 19 but I didn't see any of the other apostles except and what's he called now this is apostle James the Lord's brother you're not the one that's like nanny, nanny, boo, boo, my brother's a kook. That one is now called the Apostle James, the Lord's brother. 
You say, what changed his life? Same thing changed Peter's life. Same thing that changed the Apostle Paul's life. Same thing that changed Bobby Harrell's life. Same thing that changed Alan Smith's life. The same thing that changed your life. They came to understand something about Jesus Christ that we call the gospel. About the time that Paul is meeting with Peter and James, three years after the resurrection. When Paul is meeting with Peter and James, now can you imagine why Peter and James? Let's just talk about that for two seconds. Well, Peter's an original. If you really want to know, if you're called to go proclaim a message now, you're Paul, here's the questions I would ask. So tell me about that feeding the 5,000 deal. Dude, did you really walk on water? Sea of Galilee, for real now. And what was that like? When you put your foot down, was it hard like that? You see what I'm saying? I have a thousand questions for Peter when I see him. How did that all work out? That whole fish thing, you know what I'm saying? When Jesus said, hey, throw your net on the other side, did you really roll your eyes? <laughs> By the way, second season of Chosen, I think, comes out tonight. Yeah, y'all, so I'll go start binge watching again. Here we go. Listen, fantastic series. Recommend it to all of you. Yeah, I understand why he wanted to talk to Peter. He's an original. Why do you think he wanted to talk to James, the Lord's brother? So when you were growing up, Okay, did, did, did Mary and Joseph ever spank him? You know what I'm saying? I mean, did Jesus ever give you a wedgie? You know? I mean, was he a normal boy? Or was he, you see what I'm saying? I'd have a thousand questions if I could talk to James, the Lord's brother. I'd have a thousand questions. And so Paul went and asked the questions. After three years... And do you know what they told Paul? And do you know what Paul already knew by meeting Jesus Christ? They said, we have a common confession, Paul. And if you're going to be one of us, you need to learn it. And the common confession goes something like this. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the grave and was seen. Let's say that out loud. Christ died for our sins and was buried. Christ rose from the grave and was, you've already got it memorized. That's the power of a creed. Listen, somebody gets in a conversation with you and says, hey, Bethany, you're, you're a Christian, I think. I'm just messing with you. You're a Christian. What do you believe? I was just talking to a coworker over here, and I'm not sure. What, what, tell us again, what is it that you guys believe? Do not say we believe the Bible, bless God, from cover to cover. <laughs> Including the cover. That's the way they used to say that. It just came back to me now. Including the cover. Thomas Nelson Publishers, that's of Jesus Christ. Okay, anyway, <laughs> red letters and, uh, anyway. Tell them, Bethany, Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the grave and was seen. Chew on that a while. What's a legend? <laughs> legend takes... Hundreds of years to develop cannot be fantastically described if it's close to the events because people can debunk it. So when did they first start believing? Three years minimum. Three years. No, they started believing on Easter Sunday morning. But within three years, it's been reduced to writing as a creed. And Paul, now in 1 Corinthians 15, is dealing with the Corinthians... 
who've lost their mind with prostitutes and lost their mind with idols and lost their mind going crazy. And now they're even talking about, well, we, we, we made our own gospel. And Paul's like, yeah, I know, and that's a problem. And your gospel doesn't have the resurrection. And you cannot call yourself a Christian if you don't believe the creed. What's the creed? Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose again. And he was seen. Now, that's a legend. It can't be a legend. He's writing now to the Corinthians just a few decades later. You know what he tells them? There are hundreds of people I could bring here to you and you can depose them and ask them yourself. See, all scholars will tell you the most credible evidence is the evidence closest to the actual events. And when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15, somewhere in the 50s, 51, 2, 3, 4, 5 AD, just a couple of decades, just 20 or so years after the resurrection. See, some of you are only 20 years old. You think old people can't remember that well. Trust me, we can remember things that happened 20 or 30 years ago. Trust me. With vivid detail, we can remember it. We can tell you about our experiences from the 80s. Okay? We can tell you about our experiences from the 90s. And beyond even. And they start talking about the resurrection of the dead. Here's what we know. Christianity did not invent the resurrection. The resurrection invented Christianity. This is the fact, Jack. Christianity did not invent the resurrection. It is not a myth. It is not a legend. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that truly gave birth to Christianity. And immediately on Sunday morning, Easter, after the crucifixion, and certainly within the next three years... The belief of Christians has been reduced to creedal form where people who can't even read or write and when there is no New Testament even written yet, the churches meet together and they say things and they worship and they celebrate and if you want to know what it is they believe, Paul recorded it and it absolutely proves that the early church believed this. Now here's why it's important. Let me close. At times all of us are going to feel despair. It's part of the human project. At times all of us are going to get sick. It's part of the human journey. Death will invade our ranks from time to time. It's part of our journey. Doubts will invade your mind from time to time. It's part of the human journey. Unfortunately, divorce will be a part of our experience for many. It's part of the human journey. Loneliness and despair at times are part of the human process. And if you're wondering this morning, where can I turn for hope when I'm lonely? Where can I turn for help when I'm being crushed by the overwhelming weight of sin that has plagued my life? Where can I go for help? Where can I go for hope? Is there anyone, is there any hope to conquer death? Is there any hope to conquer sin? Is there any help to find forgiveness? The answer is all found on Sunday morning in the person of the risen Jesus Christ. This morning we have hope because we have a living Savior.
And because he is alive, we can go to him for help. We can go to him for forgiveness. We can go to him for encouragement and for strength. You see, because of our belief in the resurrection, Christians have a very unique way of talking about death. As I close, let me mention this in verse number 6. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive. If it was a myth, they could debunk anything. But some of them have, what's the expression, fallen asleep. When Christians talk about Christians dying in the New Testament, it's only used of Christians, though. <clears throat> they describe it as falling asleep. One morning, Jesus went to the home of the president of the synagogue. His 12-year-old daughter died. And Jesus pushed everybody away, shut the door, went in with mom and dad, and said, okay, mom, you can dry your eyes now. She's not dead. Hear the words of Jesus. She sleeps. Went over and took her by the hand. Said, okay, sweet pea, rise and shine. And those little eyelashes fluttered. The color came to her cheeks. As she sat up in the bed. She must have said, I'm starving. Do we have any gummy bears? I mean, something. Because Jesus immediately turned to the parents and said, go get her something to eat. She's sleeping. Jesus delayed in going to Bethany. Lazarus was sick. He died. They buried him. He'd been dead for several days and in the tomb for several days. Jesus said, okay, let's go see him now. Our friend Lazarus is sleeping. And you're going to ask yourself when you read your Bible and see that, why do Christians talk this way? I'll tell you why. Because when people fall asleep, they eventually... Now you're getting it. Christians talk this way. A little weird. I get it. But we talk this way on purpose because of something we believe and something we know to be true. She sleeps. He sleeps. You say, no, they're dead. We buried them. Well, just wait a little longer. Because when you go to sleep, you eventually wake up. The confidence we have today since our faith doesn't rest in each other, but it rests in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know that our loved ones will awaken someday. If the Lord tarries his coming and you bury me and I bury you, whatever, how this works out for us in God's timeline, as we lay each other to rest and we do these funerals, I want you to remember to say to one another, they are just sleeping. We will see them again shortly. Because for the Christian, this is very, very real to us. Now let me say this this morning. Confessions don't need to be complicated. But they do need to be personal. I mean, you can't come in here and say, well, my church believes this. Christ died for our sins and was buried and he rose again and was seen. No, you need to be able to say, I believe this. So here's my question for you this morning. Do you believe this? Because this is what Christians believe. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want you to wrestle with this one question. Do you believe? 
As I said earlier in the sermon, we come from all different perspectives this morning together here on Easter Sunday. Maybe you're trying to recapture your faith. Maybe you've been gone for a while. Maybe you've drifted. Maybe you've never really heard the gospel clearly one time or responded to it in your life. Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. It's a fact. But he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And he was seen. And he was seen by hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses who could easily have debunked it if it was a myth. But instead they testified to it and they laid down their lives for it. Because it is real. If you've never received Christ as your Savior this morning, the Bible says if you would confess that you're a sinner and you would put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and call upon him to be your Lord and Savior, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're to that point of conviction in your heart, we understand I am a sinner and I need a Savior. I sure can't save myself. And I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Why don't you call upon him this morning to be your Savior? Let me help you with the prayer. You don't need to come forward. You don't need to make a speech. Right where you are this morning, right where you are listening remotely, from your heart, cry out to Jesus. Say something like this. Dear God, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I can't save myself. Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God who came to this world and died on the cross. I believe you were buried. I believe you rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And with that belief, Lord, I want to ask you this morning to forgive me of my sins. I put my trust and my faith in you, Jesus, as my King, my Lord, my Savior. Come into my heart. Make me a part of your kingdom from this moment. Thank you for loving me. And thank you for saving me. For Christians whose heads are bowed right now, maybe your faith's wavered a little. The year we've had would shake anybody up for sure. Make this a time of rededication this morning where you say to King Jesus, Lord, I'm back. I'm yours. And I believe. Give me a fresh start this morning. Fresh start on my journey, a fresh start in faith on this Easter Sunday morning. Jesus, thank you for loving me. I'm yours. You are mine. In Jesus' name we pray.